Thank you for joining Associated Luxury Hotels International for this episode of Beyond the Meeting Room. Beyond the Meeting Room is hosted by Alhai's president and CEO, Michael Dominguez. Each episode, Alhai shares candid conversations on a variety of topics to enhance your personal and professional life. Today's episode is brought to you by Intercontinental Miami, located at the crossroads of Miami's business and arts districts. Known as the Bayfront Icon, the luxurious 34-story hotel sits on the shore of Biscayne Bay in the heart of downtown Miami, providing breathtaking panoramic city and water views for a unique mix of work and play. In today's episode, we are joined by Mick Ebeling, founder and CEO of Not Impossible Labs, a social tech incubator determined to improve the world one invention at a time. Mick believes that society's biggest problems can be solved with fewer eco-chambers and a little more elbow grease. And he reminds us that throughout history, humans have consistently made the impossible possible. He says we all have the power to make an impact and by recognizing failure as a gateway to solutions, we can collectively solve the absurdities of humanities by breaking large-scale issues into manageable endeavors while maintaining a positive mindset. Mick, uh, thanks for joining us uh, for this Beyond the Meeting Room uh, podcast. And as we were just talking, I, I, I was really excited about this conversation. I'm, I'm sorry I missed you at, at our IFLE program, but um, what you've talked about and, and what you are doing is not only inspirational, I, I think it, it is a conversation that needs to be heard by many more. Um, yeah, yeah I, I wanted to just take a minute and, and if you could talk about a little bit about um, first, what you're doing and what kind of inspired it, the, the Not Impossible Labs and, and your thought process around everything is possible. And, and there's so many things that through history that we thought were impossible and we've now proven that they're not. Can you talk about your inspiration around this? Because I, I find this fascinating and some of the work you're doing around the world, can't, candidly, is just inspiring. Absolutely. Uh, and thanks for having me, Michael. It's really good to be here. Um, well, Ironically, serendipitously, perfectly, today actually is the non-impossible labs anniversary. Um, so we're, yeah, so we're talking right now on the anniversary of of the really the birth. I, it, it's the it's the anniversary of the legal birth of non-impossible, but non-impossible started before it was legally born, right? So um, non-impossible really happened um, like a lot of great things in life, completely on accident. It was a, the, the Reader's Digest version on this. Uh, and for those listening that don't know what Reader's Digest version it was used to be something <laughs> that you'd say when you were doing a condensed version of something. Um, so the- uh, we, we just dated ourselves, right? That was we totally just dated ourselves right there. We totally just dated ourselves. So the, um, my wife and I went out on a date. We got exposed to a paralyzed graffiti artist at this fundraiser. I learned through the course of getting to know he and his uh, or his family that he had been lying motionless in a bed for seven years and able to talk and able to communicate. Uh, he didn't have access to what I would call a Stephen Hawking machine, a device that allowed him to speak or, or to communicate by moving his eyes back and forth and which dragged a cursor on the screen and then that would select letters and then the robot would talk like this. And he didn't have access to that because his parents didn't have the right money, didn't have the right jobs, the right insurance. And I found that to be absurd that someone who literally lived, I think he's like a little over 12 miles from where I live and where I'm talking to you right now in Venice Beach, California, 
was unable to communicate with his brother, with his father. I'm a brother, I'm a father. I said, that's ridiculous. Um, we got to do something. And so I, at the time I had a production company, uh, I'm a, you know, a producer by trade. And so we just know how to get shit done and make shit happen. So we, ba I basically did what a producer does. I convened a bunch of people, brilliant people together who were experts in their particular fields. We ended up creating this device um, called the iWriter, which was cheap sunglasses, coat hanger, zip ties, duct tape, and a web camera. We wrote some code. You were able to put these sunglasses on that you knocked, the, the lenses were knocked out. The coat hanger was bent around to the front, duct taped on the side. We zip tied the web camera so it focused back on the pupil. And then that web camera would use the pupil as that tracking point. So as he would move his eyes back and forth, that was the, the movement of the cursor. So we did it. It worked. It was this incredible night. Everybody was high-fiving and crying. And then we went home and we all went back to our day jobs. And then all of a sudden we woke up one day and it was Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of the year. People were calling it one of the best health inventions of our time. I always wanted to give a TED talk, didn't know what the hell I would talk about. Now I got invited to do TED talks. It's now part of the permanent collection at the moment in New York. And, and it was just like one thing after another. And it made me kind of stop and say, hang on a second. I've worked on a lot of things in my career. I've never worked on something that just naturally uh, took off on its own accord, like to this scale, right? This thing went bigger than anything I ever imagined. So it challenged me to start to contemplate what would happen if you started to use and see problems, issues, absurdities in the world, and you deployed technology hacked, made prototype technology, and then created it open source and make, or just making it accessible for people to right. use. So that's what we, that was this kind of contemplation. You know, I wasn't old enough to have a midlife crisis, but that, and I, and I also loved what I was doing. So it wasn't like I was, you know, unhappy with my career. And I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And eventually uh, decided, made the decision, you know what, you got lucky. Just enjoy, enjoy all your podcasts, enjoy all your articles, enjoy all the kind of the, your Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame, but just get back to your day job and just do what you know how to do, which is the business of production and animation and design. And the moment I made that decision, I'm no joke. The moment I made that decision, I checked my email and I was, I was, I had resolved. That's it. I'm just going to go back to my day job. We'll, 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 we'll get nicer duct tape and zip ties, but we're going to just keep on doing We're going to, that's just kind of a side goof project. And we got lucky. And, and the moment I made that decision, I checked my email and it said, there was an email from the artist and he said, that's the first time I've drawn anything for seven years. I feel like I'd been held underwater and someone finally reached down and pulled my head up so I could oh take God. a breath. And we went, all right, well, what do you do if you decided not to do something and some dude sends you an email like that? And so that was kind of the, the moment in time. That was this, this moment where not impossible and the concept of not impossible was born. And so now we exist. And this is obviously a little longer than the Reader's Digest version, but we exist now to see absurdities that exist in the world, issues, the issues of mobility or accessibility, communication, uh, whatever it might be, health-related issues, and figure out how we can hack, make big, very nimble solutions, prototypes, and then make it accessible for people so that, that their lives might be better. So we call it the creation of technology for the sake of humanity. Well, I, I love that you use the word absurdity because what I, what I hear when you're saying that is it's absurd that we haven't solved for this. 
that that we're not doing something about it as a society. Am I wrong? You use that word very intentionally, which I, I find fascinating. I think that I think that society is trying. Sometimes we're trying to do some things because there was at the when we created that there was lots of devices and solutions. Not lots, but there were a few solutions called ocular recognition devices, right? right? Which I didn't know if you put the words ocular recognition and technology together that it made a noun. But that was that was there. The problem was it was prohibitively expensive. Exactly. Yeah, it, it wasn't accessible. To your point. So we try to create accessible technology for yeah. people that makes it so it we piss a lot of people off who are who are kind of the 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 status quo of of that particular industry but we say well, wait a second hang on why let's this is about people having their basic human rights of freedom of communication expression mobility we don't have to sit back and make it so that oh if you don't have the right amount of money that you can't have that and so we that's kind of our that's a, that's a bit of our robin hood mentality of of we just we're about serving the people and making it so people can have access to these solutions no i like i i love that and 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 that's what i meant i when I said uh, that society is not fixing it, it it's, not, it's not to be critical. It's that it's not the way our society structured to, you know, that it, it doesn't make it accessible to everybody. I find that fascinating. And, and when I was reading your, your book, I mean, one of the things that stood out to me is like you solve for the one and you help the many. Uh, yeah. Like you really focus on that. And I, I think we were talking about this briefly before we got started. I, I think that is why many of us find things overwhelming. Because we're, we're trying to boil the ocean instead of saying, if we start with one, if you can focus on one individual, one need, one problem, it, it tends to apply to many more. Exactly. Uh, that, it's a multiplier effect, I guess, is what you're looking at. Well, the thing is, is that we as humans, if I said to you, all right, Michael Dominguez, we're going to tackle malaria. We're going to tackle global hunger. We're going to tackle you know, uh, non-recyclable plastics. We're gonna, like, I just, I just listed off three massive issues that I don't know, I didn't check your family lineage, but if you check mine, I'm not related to Warren Buffett. I'm not related to Bill, <laughs> not, I'm not related to Jeff Bezos. Right. So tackling issues of that magnitude, it, it feels like completely, difficult. I'm not, I never use the word impossible. In my family, you can drop the F-bomb at the breakfast table, but if you drop the impossible word at the breakfast table, you're going to get in more trouble than dropping the F-bomb, right? <laughs> so, so, but you just, you do feel an ability to disconnect yourself from that. Ah, oh, that's really tragic that the turtles are dying from the plastic, but what can I do? And you don't, you don't cognitively say these words, but subconsciously you think, what well, now if I say, hey, there's one person one turtle one something that you can go and make a difference to for with then it gives you as a human being this accessibility to feel like you you are actually having progress and that's what i think we crave in our lives is a feeling of, of purpose a feeling of meaning a feeling of progress and that's what help one help many is really about is to kind of dismantle this disassociation that we can cognitively subconsciously have if if it's too big by reducing it minimizing what we're trying to do down to something bite-sized all of a sudden you, you you're able to start and get some momentum and then all of a sudden you're like 
well, wait a second, I've done it once, I've done it twice, I've done it four times. Now all of a sudden you feel like you're having some progress and some momentum. And, and, and truly, if you think about this, and this is kind of our battle cry, if you think about if the entire world went out and helped one person, what would happen? What would happen, right? Like right. all of a sudden you've got global mass change that's taking place as opposed to relying on, you know, billionaire philanthropists to, to have to, you know, grant that. And that's not to say that what they're doing is bad. It's just right. saying that we don't have to place our, our, our belief that, that society can, and, and the world can be saved into, you know, very inefficient government institutions, NGOs, or, or billionaires. Yeah, I, I love that thought process because I, 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 I'm a big fan of Admiral McRaven. And, you know, he was a 36-year Navy SEAL, but he gave this speech at the University of Texas, their commencement address in 14. It's what, it's what really launched him into prominence from a speaker standpoint. But the one thing he said in there, Mick, that I, I always remember is that he's talking about how one person can make a difference. And, and he, he, he referenced this study that if th this one individual and how they impacted 10, and then those 10 impacted another 100. And he went through on how that one individual has an impact on 10,000 in their lifetime. Gotcha, and, yeah. And, that, and that, that's our responsibility, that our job is to have that impact because it may be that one individual, but that one individual is gonna be the multiplier. And I, I love that you're putting the responsibility on us that we can all make a difference. And um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we were talking beforehand, our, our organization does that. We, we take on issues and we try to say, look, we're gonna try to make a difference because if we can help one life, if we can help one person, we know that person's gonna move on. And um, I, I, I think that is an important message for people because sometimes the world seems so overwhelming, um, mm -hmm. but don't, don't take on the world, T yeah. take on one individual. <laughs> so, exactly. I, I, I learned so much when I, I read what, what you had put out there and it really did, it, it made me think on, it, it made it bite-sized. It made the world feel like it was bite-sized the problems we had, versus something that I, I'm going to choke on if I if I took a bite. And 100%. that, yeah, that that was exciting for me across the board. One of your chapters is labeled something. If not now, when? Um, explain that because to me, it's like get off your duff and let's go. <laughs> if you're going to do it. So one of our core values at Non Impossible is impatience. Yeah. Right. Is what would happen if you we're impatient about the types of things that you see that need to be done and that you had this sense of urgency. And so our, all right, I'm gonna try to, again, I'll try to wrap this into a nice tight little wrapper here <laughs> that we are constantly daunted by the magnitude of the things that we see in the world. And we're also constantly distracted with kind of real life and, and what's going on. Um, what would happen if we said, okay, look, in the general scheme of things, if we just kind of pull out, pull back and look at the, at the history of our planet and saw ourselves as a node in that timeline, we would see that our life and our time here is faster than that. I mean, it's, 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 it's like half of that. So the significance of what we can create in terms of both negative impact on the world and positive impact on the world, we have a very short window of time to do that, right? So it's our, our one of the things that we really, you know, advocate for is you gotta, you gotta do something and you gotta start it. The sooner you start it, the sooner you fall and skin your knees 
and 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 realize, oh, well, that's not going to work. So I'm going to try a different approach to whatever it is I'm trying to solve. And the quicker you can get to a point where maybe other people can see it and start to advance the ball down the field with you or or pick it up and be motivated yeah. by you. So our whole thing is, if not now, when, if not me, who, if we, if we wait around for the right circumstances, the right timing, the right everything, first of all, we don't have that much time on this planet, number one. And number two is, if you start it, you actually are beginning the iterative process. And one of the things I think that I love about what we do at Non Impossible is that through our spirit of impatience, is that typically for a large corporate entity, by the time they've scheduled their first phone call, their first conference, their first Zoom conference call, we've gone through a couple iterations already because we are we're we actually see the process of breaking some eggs as right. part of the positive progress forward, not like let's perfectly package what this is going to be. So that's that's really kind of what that means for us culturally at Not Impossible. Well, I, I love it because you talk about breaking eggs and skinning knees and. You also have a chapter in here is like fail, 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 succeed and repeat. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big believer in this. I, I, I tell my team often, look, if you're telling me you haven't failed, I'm not impressed. You've taken no risk. Yep. And if you're going to take risks, you're going to fail. It's just part of the process. But yep. can you talk to that a little bit? Because I think that's what holds people back. And so we many, many, many times we're brought in to work with companies on creating a, a culture of innovation and purpose. And we see those things. Sometimes the, sometimes companies will say, well, we want to create an innovative culture. And I'll say, great, then there has to be a reason why you're creating an innovative purpose, innovation, a culture of innovation, which has to be overlaid or intertwined with a, a, a culture of purpose. People want to feel like they are, there's a reason of why they're they're going to work every day. And if it's just to make money, you know, for the machine, they, they feel disassociated from that, right? Part of what that process is, is you have to embrace this feeling, this sentiment of experimentation and, and this desire to go through and fail. So we always say, you know, every year, and I'm sure many of the organizations or groups that are listening right now probably have um, award shows at the end of the year. Once people right. have hit their marks, hit their targets, what we always encourage the C-suite to do is to also have a category of the best failures, right? The 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 shots the shots on goal, the baskets take. You know, everyone knows the fact that that Babe Ruth was the home run, you know, champion. You know, he's, he's will always be remembered as being this home run, you know, figurehead. He also led the league in strikeouts, right? <laughs> that means he was he was taking swings, but you don't remember him for being striking out. You remember him for what he did, and. That's the thing I think that, that C-suites and leaders need to do is they need to not just do it as like a funny, funny, like, all right, next up, we're going to be the people who failed. It's no, here's the, here's, a, here's the award to the people who tried, who were the, you know, the Roosevelt quote, you know, the, the man in the arena. It's the, it's the man or the woman who's in the arena who's actually taking, taking the chances, but here's what we learned from it. And then that's the part where one, it humanizes the overall experience for people who feel this, they live in this, in, this perfect Instagram life where if it's not perfect, you shouldn't do it. But now they're like, oh, wait, this is, it actually encourages me and, 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 and catalyzes me to want to take chances on things that might work or might not work. I mean, name, name a successful business that exists right now that wasn't 
that wasn't based on the premise of something that was innovative at its time. Now you don't even think about it anymore. Well, innovation is part of risk-taking. Risk-taking is taking the risk of the fact that you will fail a couple of times. So why is it that leaders have created and cultures have been created around this, you know, really safe, secure, fortify and, 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 and kind of um, protect what you're trying to do before you actually try to do it. It just doesn't, it doesn't encourage innovation. Yeah. You, you know, it's so counter to how we are as human beings yep. uh, in general. That, that's really what you're talking about. Cause Mick, I'm, I, it's always been my mission in my organizations to drive that kind of culture. I, I want to celebrate failure. I want to celebrate that we're learning from the failure because we took that risk and we took that chance and what are we going to learn? And I, I I've always said, there's something in that that we'll take away that will make us better one yep. way or another, if we tend to evaluate it. And um, I, I pointed, it's really timely right now with Maverick hitting this, this summer and, you know, the Top Gun movies back in, in play, but the original Top Gun, there's that one scene where they're, they're all in a room and they're breaking down Tom Cruise, where he did the one maneuver. And it's for Tom Scare, it's like, you made a bad choice, you know, and there, it's that uncomfortable feeling because he's pissed that they're telling him he made a bad choice because everybody's trying to learn from it. I had a friend that was a fighter pilot. And the one thing he told me is even after a practice run, that's exactly what they did, you know, because with pilots, it's life or death. So we are going to review everything to see what we learned from and we learn from the mistakes that were made on that run. And I think about surgeons. If you lose a patient, you have to be in front of all other surgeons going through every step of your surgery yep. and explaining what happened, what didn't, so you can learn from it. But to your point, we haven't been able to bring that in to that to me in that kind of tone into business. And, and I get if you're a, if you're a heart surgeon. Yeah. And, and you're going to debate risk taking with me. Great. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to debate <laughs> too much, but the majority of the th people that are listening right now are not in life and death situations. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. and by the way, one of my good friends is one of we, he, I was in the air force. He was one of the top, he was the top heart specialist in the military for all, he was in the air force, but he was for all three branches, right. Oh, Four wow. branches. And um, he would say that he took risks, right? Yeah. You know, calculated risk, but he still takes risks. So risk taking is something that you need to, you need to, as a leader and as a, whether you're a manager or whether you're a CEO, it's something you really need to encourage because if you don't, then what, what's the growth, right? People, people don't go to work to play it safe. They go, they go to work to, to grow as humans. Yeah, I, I really do love that. And I, and I, I, it was one of my favorite chapters uh, of the book because, I, I just think it's something we understate uh, in business, the, the fact that we should take risk. And, but, but, you know, Mick, I, I've been in environments, and you've probably seen it, where we tell people we, we want to be risk takers. We, we want to do that. And as soon as you fail, you get taken out at the knees. Um, I, I always tell, tell leaders, if you're going to create an environment, you can't take anyone out of the knees for trying. Because yep. uh, as soon as you do it, you kill, you kill that environment completely. Well, and, also, and also be clear going in, you know, as the person who's taking the risk, like be super clear, like, hey, guys, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out, I'm going to swing for the fences on this one. And this is like, set yourself up so that people understand why, why you're doing that. I think it's there's, there's a way to do it as well, where don't don't sneak off, don't don't sneak out at two in the morning and steal mom and dad's car. And then come back with it crashed and say, you know, sorry, I took a risk, like, do it. In, <laughs> 
do it in an intelligent way that sets you up so that you're you're actually have the ability to have the the people surrounding you champion that that risk taking. Now you're describing my lineage when you're talking about taking the car out of town. <laughs> so, now, now we're getting there. <laughs> uh, I, I love it. I, I really absolutely love it. Um, but, you know, like you talk about impossible. To me, there it's a psychology um, behind it. And, and this is outside of what you're doing as far as the work. It, it's a mental thought process. Do, do you think your, your background, I, I mean, you talked about being a creator and a storyteller, you, you know, you being a creator in there, I think you're, you would always be taking risk a little bit. And you, you, I would think you're looking at the world as everything's possible when yep. you're, you're a producer, you're a creator. Did you bring, did that help you bring that mentality to the table to begin with? Because I'm I mean, trying to people to figure out how to get there, you know? As a producer, you're constantly assuring people that you know what you're doing and then you right. hang up the phone and you don't have a clue, right? So I think that's part of the process. So, so I always I always tell people that had I not been a producer, there's no way Not Impossible would exist because we would get a phone call from a brand, a movie studio, an ad agency, and they would say, we've got no budget, no time, and we need you to do something that's never been done before. And then I would very confidently say, <laughs> say no problem, you know. We've done some things like that and, you know, no problem. Um, yeah, they, we're, we're on. Let's, we, we can start tomorrow. And they'd say, great, Mick, so glad I called you. It's great. And I said, great, you want to get out for a beer tonight? Oh, no, I'm busy. Okay, great. No, hang up the phone and you're like, oh, shit, what did I just commit to, right? <laughs> but then, but you build that muscle of bringing, like you start to say like, who's the expert and what other things have been done? And you start to kind of draw those strings together and pull it together. And that's, I think that's what we do as human beings, right? Is just because you haven't done it before doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you haven't done it yet. And I, I, I always talk about in the, when the talks that I give and when I meet with people, my job is not to inspire you, right? I am not, I am not your inspiration. I am your reminder. I am your reminder, the fact that you and your entire species which we share, right? We all pump blood and breathe air. We have spent our entire existence doing things that we've never done before. Right. And you don't even think twice about it. What, what, um, just out of curiosity, what floor are you on right now? I'm on the seventh floor. The seventh floor. And when you got there today, when you, or whenever you got there, when you got into the elevator, did you look around like, what is this? I've never been in one of these before. And then when you walked up and you looked out and you're like, whoa, I've never been this high up before. And then when you went over and you grabbed the faucet and you're like, whoa, water comes out when I just turned this down. None of those things you were amazed by. Yet there was a time in your, in the past Michael Dominguez lineage when someone did that and we're like, what the hell? This is amazing. I can't believe this, right? So we as a species have gone through impossibility that goes to possibility over and over and over and over and over again. So why do we not think that the next thing is not going to be possible? Like we've spent our entire life transitioning things from impossible to possible. Why do we forget that? We have this, we're sh we have such short attention spans and short memories to realize that everything we do is that transition. So that's, that's kind of our battle cry. That's for us. This battle cry of the fact that impossible is a fallacy. And right. from a historical perspective, 
from a data perspective, yep. we have demonstrated over and over and over again that it is a fallacy, yet we forget. So my job, not impossible's job, is to continue to remind everybody, you guys are good. We're going to figure this out. It might not happen, like I said earlier, it might not happen this year, this, this decade. It might not happen in your lifetime. But isn't it a little narcissistic for you to think that you have finally discovered that one thing that shall remain impossible forever? That's, <laughs> that, that's, that for us is kind of the battle cry. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. You, you know, it's funny because I think as leaders, um, our wording, our questions, and, and that's why I meant by thought process actually set that up. Because Mick, I, I never ask people in my organization, can we? I ask them, how do we? Yep, yep. Whenever I'm looking at something, I'm like, how do we do this? I don't yep. ask, can we do this? Because I know we can. Let's just figure out the how. Yep. And, and when people are giving me barriers, I'm like, I didn't give you any restrictions. I didn't say I wouldn't invest. I didn't say we wouldn't put yep. resources towards it. So yep. with no restrictions, how do we get there? And, and, and I think that that's an important piece for leaders. You, you, you know, how you, how you tee something up for your people matters yep. just as much as trying to say this is going to be the target. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent. Well, let, let me ask you something. You, you mentioned Ted uh, doing your Ted talk. Tell me about that experience. Um, you know, so few of us will ever have that opportunity. Was it what you thought it was? Because you said, all right, I finally get to do my TED Talk. You know, why did you want to do a TED Talk? Did you get did you get out of it personally what you thought you would? Uh, I, you know, it was uh, <laughs> one of those, it was one of those bucket list things. Yeah, and yeah. I love, I really, I, th I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world. You know, I met your organization because I got a chance to speak to people and I love sharing what we do because I get a chance to witness people light up when I remind them the fact that they can go do this too, you know? Um, yeah, I just, uh, it was an awesome experience. Ted is one of those things that uh, is just, it's such a culturally for our you know, this last, God, Ted's been around for, I think, 15, 20 years now, something like that. Yeah. It just was this wonderful melting pot of ideas being shared. You know, now, now there's no way you could watch every TED Talk. And, and but it, it was one of those things that I was always very inspired by. And, and not just from the art of the presentation, but also just these brilliant people that I, that I got a chance to quote meet by watching it. So I just, I just have always wanted to do that. And, and, but like I said, I didn't know what I would talk about because I didn't, I didn't think I was doing anything <laughs> remarkably special. And then I got a chance to talk about it. So it was, it was really, fun. it was a dream come true for me. Now that that's phenomenal. And, and, you know, it's funny because you talked about being open source that that's what was so unique with Ted when they started that it was open source content, e even though they had their face to face meetings, you know, we, we could access it at any time. And, um, I, I love the, I can see how you would align to it because it's about sharing that knowledge with others and sharing it to the world and, yep. you know, hopefully making a difference in the world as a whole. But yeah, you mentioned it and it's like, okay, that's kind of cool. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I, that's what I had to ask. I, I, I spoke at a South by Southwest program a few years back and, and it was on the business side of it and like, okay, that's cool, but it's not Ted yet. You know, Ted, Ted at some point would be cool, but I, I'm like you, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> that, that's, that, that's the hard part of it when it's all done. <laughs> so, so Mick, what's next? Yeah, yeah, what's next for the Not Impossible Labs? 
You know, we're we're looking at a bunch of different things right now. Um, for us, this is about you know continuing the mission of Non Impossible, which is the creation of technology for the sake of humanity. We're doing some work in the space of Parkinson's. We're doing some work in the space. It was a derivative. Uh, that work is a derivative of some work we're doing. Um, you can see on our website, uh, if you go to notimpossible.com, you can see some of the work that we're doing in the space of haptics and, and vibrotactile communication of music through um, wearables that create a, a translation of an, our, our interpretation of music using your skin as the eardrum. Um, which is really amazing. And we're doing a, a we're, that's, that's cool. been a long-term project. And that, the, one of the, as I said, one of the derivatives of that is its effect on symptoms of Parkinson's. Uh, we have a, we launched a, a company in the middle of the pandemic, or that actually the, at the onset of the pandemic, a company called Bento. You can go to gobento.com to see that. That's about food security and food insecurity in this country that um, actually, you know, won us our first, Time Magazine top invention was the iWriter and our second one was Bento. And so we, for all of our research, we believe that we are the only entity who's ever won um, uh, Not Impossible Labs, who's ever won a fast company world-changing idea twice and a Time Magazine top invention twice. Um, so we've got a, a list of things like that. So the, the food security uh, solution and food insecurity right. solution, um, you know, I just can't, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call before we started this, I just came back from Ukraine looking at trying to create um, a expanded version of what we did for Project Daniel, which you can see on the website, uh, which is the world's first 3D printing prosthetic lab, doing that for people who have suffered amputations in the war in Ukraine. So we've got a lot of different things that are going on right now, but it really comes back to seeing absurdities, recognizing absurdities, and then figuring out the best way to amplify those. I think one of the things that I have enjoyed most about the evolution of Non-Impossible is the fact that we have adopted a mentality of partnering with corporations. Like we are a, not a nonprofit. We have a nonprofit arm, but right. we, we believe that you need to mobilize the best structure, corporate structure, financing structure, technology structure, to be able to create and, and deploy solutions. Sometimes that's a nonprofit, sometimes that's open source, and sometimes that's a for-profit. So our partnerships with uh, companies right now have really been able to, to accelerate and amplify what we do and working with those companies at, at, at coming in and creating these cultures of innovation and purpose and then watching the amazing not impossible ideas that stem out of that. So now all of a sudden you're talking about scaling the notion of not impossible throughout the world because people's and companies are able to see and deploy these things so more people can be helped. So I think that's probably one of the most exciting things that we're, that we're currently engaged with. Well, I, and I love that you mentioned that because to me, there's a connectivity there. There, there are, to your point, very large for-profit organizations that are doing good work to help others. And, mm -hmm. and when you can ignite that and you can bring that to life, because sometimes they have all the resources, all the reach in the world. They just don't have the idea. They, 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 don't, they don't have the, what, what is the absurdity that I need to target? Yep. And I, I love that you're connecting that, those two pieces because- um, I, I, I don't think they're exclusively exclusive. I, I think yeah. they can help each other in a lot of different ways. And what we've seen with a lot of our, you know, we, we deal with a lot of corporate customers in our hotels and you realize they all have a, a philosophy today 
your major corporations of, you know, we can do well and do good at the same time. Yep. And, and I, I love that that is kind of one of your takeaways is that, that it is so easy for companies. And oh, here's the crazy thing. Ready for this? Here's, here's yeah. the, you can do good and do well. And right now, from an HR perspective, from a recruiting perspective, from a, a retention perspective, it's the number one strategy you can deploy. So we have a massive issue in this country and quite frankly in the world of people going, wait a second, if I'm gonna bust my ass working for a company and yet at the end of the day, I don't feel personally rewarded on the work that I'm doing is making a difference in the world, I'm punching out and I'll go work as a barista someplace so that I can volunteer or so that I can go do something else that, that means something in my life. So now if you wanna keep those talented human beings, you need to deploy and truly create a, a real, not a fabricated kind of greenwashing, but a real sense of purpose that people can adopt and, and, and making sure your company stands for something beyond just the bottom line. And that's, that is, I think, there's a lot of good things that came out of the pandemic. That is probably one of the best things that came out is now people have been ignited to companies have been ignited and realized, oh my gosh, if I don't have this type of strategy, people choosing between A, B, and C company to work for, they're going to choose the company where they make less money, but they, they feel like they're actually, their life means something. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Mick. And, and you know, it's funny, the things that we have taken on as an organization is what comes back from our employees of what they're proud, what they're proud about, about working for Allah is, you know, we were talking earlier about the human trafficking issue. That is right now. And that is our focus. And that will never not be a focus, but you know, I, I wrote down go bento because maybe we're adding into a next stage. Once we were saying, okay, we're not stopping this, but how are, how else are we going to make a difference and how else yep. are we going to use? Cause we do know we have a voice in our industry and we have a platform and a lot of visibility. How do we use that for good? And how yep. do we use it to educate and move people? And uh, one, I'm always focused on how are we, what are we doing to make sure our industry is strong? And then how are we making sure the neighborhoods that our hotels are in are better because we're associated with them? And yep. then what else can we do to help the world? But what you just said, I've seen it's come back to me where our employees are proud that we're doing this. They, yeah. they, they have, they, they, they walk very tall when they walk into a room to know that we're tackling the, you know, the uh, human trafficking issue, or we're going to, yeah. we're going to tackle hunger in, in these communities. And, and I, I find that rewarding on my side, but I also, I also find it my responsibility. Yeah. My responsibility as a leader is to say, Let's answer the why of what we're doing, not just what we do. And yep, yep. Um, we, we just went through this marketing exercise that you would appreciate. And it was kind of, okay, uh, describing who we are and, and, and what we do. And, and I added a section that I, I made our marketing team go back to look at. I said, I added a section that says, why do we do what we do? Yep. Why are we here? Because yep. it's not, if it's only about us having a good business and us making money, then that's not really interesting to people. But right. If we have a belief system that we need to make our industry better and that we can, through uniting an industry, we can actually make a real impact. Um, I, I remind everybody when we got focused on plastics, we got rid of plastic straws in about nine months for the most part. Amazing. Because we were all focused on the same thing. And if we could do that, um, I just think it, it has that multiplier effect we've talked about. And uh, that, that is my, my impatience. 
<laughs> when you talk about it. That's where I get really impatient because I'm like, we, we just need to all be singing from the same handbook at the yeah. same time to really make a difference, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I, I, like I said, your book really spoke to me. Um, and your message spoke to me because I, I think it's within us to make a difference. And when you talked about impossible, I, I don't know if you um, follow the story. The one thing I always think about was Roger Bannister when he broke the four minute mile and nobody had been able to do it. And uh, to date, over 1600 athletes have broken the mile uh, under the four minute mile because Roger Bannister showed it wasn't impossible. And, and do you know that within 90 days of him breaking that? two other people broke it. So all yeah. you need to do is give people permission and all of a sudden they don't see it as a barrier anymore. Yeah, I, I love that. That's what came to mind when I read about your impossible because I, 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 that's why I asked you, is it a psychology? Because I don't think people understand it's here. You got to mm -hmm. believe that you can do it. And if you can 100%. get it done, if you believe it, it'll get done. 100%, uh, 100%. It may not be tomorrow. I, I always tell people, I'm going to do everything we say we're going to do. It may not be on the timeline, I said, right. but we will do it. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Mick, like, we're out of time. I, I could talk to you all day, but I uh, one, thank you for being with us and thank you for your energy. And most importantly, uh, thank you for reminding us. Uh, keep reminding people out there uh, because I, I know you're making a difference and you've already made a difference in our community. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I definitely look forward to staying in touch. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mick. Take care. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Meeting Room, presented by Associated Luxury Hotels International. Alhi is a global sales and marketing organization representing the finest luxury hotels, cruise lines, and destination management companies. For the latest industry news and to see Alhi's robust portfolio, follow us on LinkedIn and check out our website at alhi.com. To learn more about Mick and the Not Impossible Lab's mission, head to notimpossible.com. Today's podcast was sponsored by Intercontinental Miami, an elegant and expansive city hotel offering 135,000 square feet of total meeting space, 653 luxury guest rooms, numerous dining outlets, and full-service spa. Bring your boardroom to Biscayne and meet mere minutes from the most exciting areas in Miami.